0: Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis. Always delighted to get to sit down on a Wednesday with a guest. And today I'm here with Charlene Lamb, who is the founder of the Grief Gallery. Thank you so much for being here.
1: It's so good to be here. And if you hear the alarms, I am not in New York City, where, oh my I'm, where I am from. <laughs> I'm actually in Lisbon in Portugal, where I'm currently based, but we live across the street from a Fire Station. So oh if you my. hear the alarm, it almost well, makes good. me miss New York. <laughs> right? A
0: little street noise has never phased us. And more than once I have interviewed someone who is doing pet loss and has lots of pets in the background. So, oh. you know, we'll just take it as the ambiance. I want to read people their your bio so that they know a little bit about you before we get Great. to talking. Charlene Lamb is a certified grief coach, curator, speaker, and founder of the Grief Gallery. She helps grieving people to navigate the practical and emotional aftermath of losing a loved one and when they're ready to transform their pain, loss, and grief into something beautiful so that they can move forward with living their own fullest lives. She has a degree in mass communication and design and over a decade of experience as a content strategist for design brands. She turned her creative eye and story-finding skills to grief work after the sudden death of her mother in 2013. She speaks about the power of art, creativity, story, meaning-making for healthy grieving and post-traumatic growth, and shares her practical and accessible curating grief framework for processing grief with grit and grace. I am so happy to have you on the podcast today.
1: I'm so excited to be here and to talk about grief and our dead parents. Yeah. That's like
0: my fun. Isn't that the most diverse thing? Yeah. Yeah. So, so in your bio, it tells us a little bit, but I always ask folks the same question when we get started, which is what, what brought you into the world of grief and loss?
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, my mother, Marilyn, she died suddenly from a stroke in 2013 So in January, it's going to be 10 years. And at the time she lived in New York. I am a native New Yorker. I'm a proud Chinese American New Yorker like my mom, but I was actually living in London at the time. So suddenly I was faced with, oh my gosh, what do I do? I'm an only child. And suddenly I had to put my life on hold to fly back to New York and then for the next two years, really fly back and forth across the Atlantic and figure out what to do with her house, the paperwork, all of her belongings in the house. And that, that makes an impression on you.
0: It really does. It really does. Yeah. It changed
1: the, the, it changed really the trajectory of my life. And when I was living in London, I was working as an independent curator. Mm. So I was putting on exhibitions and shows where I showcased the work of designers and makers and artists. I've always had this kind of creative part to my work. And when I had to put everything on hold to deal with my mother's house, I found that leaning into that background was really what helped me to kind of guide myself through that acute grief process and also through the practical task of dealing with her house and all those belongings in it.
0: Oh my gosh. I have a million thoughts. One is a minute ago off mic, I asked you if you were listening to Anderson Cooper and his (laughs) new podcast, which I'm going to recommend. I mean, he's not paying me for this, but if people haven't listened to Anderson Cooper's new podcast, which I think is called "What's Left Behind." Oh, I don't so. know if that's the right title, but it's exactly this topic, isn't it? He's mm-hmm. cleaning out his mother Gloria Vanderbilt's apartment, which has sort of been sitting idle for three years during the pandemic. And I think Anderson is doing the opposite of what you're describing. He has brought, I think, everything of his mother's—you know, paintbrushes, mm-hmm. you know, pieces of paper underwear, like he's got it all in the basement of his apartment, which is fine when you are able to financially, you know, this is what I always say to people when they're, when they, it's a question I get a lot. When should I get rid of stuff? How will I know when it's okay to get rid of stuff? And what I, what I say to people when I'm coaching them grieving is you will know if it feels impossible now, Hmm. that's because it's impossible. And that, our emotional experience does unlock and change and shift over time, even mm-hmm. when we don't go to the things and touch them. So, if yes. it's possible to yes. let the organic shift, but for a lot of people, it's not possible. You know, exactly. has to go on the market. We can't afford it. You know, rent and all that stuff. Tell absolutely. me a little bit about just even the word curator. Let's not assume yes. that people even know what that means. Can you tell me what the curator does and how that applies to the topic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And curator is such a funny word, right? Because it's been co-opted and popularized by so many industries. Yes. Right. When Starbucks starts talking about oh, we have a curated list of drinks. Box. Yes. Then it's like, okay, Uh, I think most people, when they think of a curator, they think of someone who works in a museum um, or who works maybe in a gallery and they might be in charge of a certain collection or a certain department. So in a broad definition, they might be in charge of a collection, both taking care of it and deciding what goes in that collection. And when they do exhibitions, they might choose, oh, which pieces go in there or which artists do they want to want to showcase. And they kind of develop that whole exhibition of that experience for the visitor. So that's a very general definition. I don't work for an institution. That's why I'm an independent curator. But I do think there's something really lovely about opening up that idea of curator. Because really, if we go to the basic definition, it's like, oh, it's someone who chooses what goes into a collection. And as human beings, we make those choices all the time. So I really like having that idea that we are all curators, especially after a loved one dies. Yeah.
0: There's a a concept of slowing down and making intentional choice that I'm hearing you describe, Mm -hmm. which is, which sort of dovetails into a lot of things. You know, I've always said sort of jokingly that my writing that my editors who help me with my writing are like my therapists. You know, you put all the words out there and they sort of help you cull it down, sort of scrape away until you're at the essence. And in therapy, when you are at the essence, it's a relief. It's a relief because you can be better seen and known. You can know yourself and you can know others. What you seem to be describing in curation is that same sort of intentional quieting and culling and and I am imagining to a point right like in writing I want to get the words as tight as possible so that they evoke a meaning so that people see it and say oh gosh I get that me too Tell me about what the curation is like for you Mm -hmm. when you, you know, either in your, in your grieving or when you are, when you're putting something together.
1: Yeah. Me as a curator back then versus me as a curator now, there's definitely a lot of difference there. And I love what you brought up as an saying as an editor and that role, because my background is in journalism as well. And I was an editor in a previous life. And I think, there is that essence because I sometimes define curating also as making intentional choices. Yes. And when we edit, we also do that, right? Like you mentioned finding the essence, what happens when we find the essence? Well, we make things clearer for ourselves and for other people. And in a lot of ways we make things lighter. A lot of the clients that I work with are feeling really weighed down and burdened by physical objects the belongings of our loved ones that they're dealing with, but also all that comes with that, right? The responsibilities, the decision-making, the regret that also comes in with it. I love what you said about Anderson Cooper and his podcast, which I really want to listen to. It's been yeah, recommended to me so really many times,
0: yeah.
1: but there is also that aspect of privilege, right? Of being able to have a space to bring a whole lifetime of belongings to and so many people do not have this option. I was lucky in that I was working for myself. So I was able to put my life yeah. and I work on hold for a bit. And I have a husband who was helping to cover bills. And I actually tried to keep my mother's house because it was her dream house. Yeah, It was a 3000 square foot house by the lake oh, that she had renovated after she divorced my father and I kept it for over a year, paying the mortgage on it. And I also recognize what a privilege that was. Yeah. And the whole time I was asking myself, how do people do this when you only have two weeks That's or right. less, right? To clear out a space and how traumatic that must be. Yeah. We've already experienced, right? The pain of having our loved one taken from us when we're not ready. That's right and then people feel that additional pain of having belongings objects that mean something to them and they have to let them go before they're really ready to yeah. that comes up a lot in my case i really like things mm. <laughs> love that love the honesty like, of
0: that.
1: and my mom loved to shop yeah like you know, she kind of achieved the American dream and she was living her best life. So that house had a lot of things in it. And I experienced this phenomenon that I think a lot of people do where everything looks a bit different after your loved one dies.
0: Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes.
1: Yeah. Like, did you experience that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about this like multi-pack of plastic bags that was under (laughs) my mother's sink. Yeah. And how I couldn't bring myself to throw them away. I couldn't bring myself to throw them away first of all because they were plastic, but mostly because I was like, "When did she think she was going to use three hundred mm. gallon size bags? Like, did are these twenty years old? Did she buy them <laughs> recently? Were they for something?" my mother had, my mother and I were not aesthetically the same. So she really liked antiques and she, she was a collector of little things and not a hoarder, but someone who had, you know, she was crafty and had lots of passions over the course of, you know, her 75 years. And so every time I opened a drawer, there was another collection of things that meant a lot to her. Irish lace, so many tablecloths, crystal, lots of crystal stuff. And I, what was trickiest for me was knowing how much she loved them and not loving them at all, you know, actually not wanting it at Mm. all because it's not my aesthetic. It felt like a tremendous betrayal to her. When we got down to like, you know, when we had fancy dinners, we had this Waterford Irish crystal, which like, it was like from a game of Clue. You could have killed (laughs) someone with this goblet. It was so leaded and heavy. And I did, I did. I took a minute and was like, am I going to take these like millions of glasses back to my house? Mm -hmm. And just the, the, the practicality of like what it would cost to box them up. And I knew we'd never use them. But I did really find myself in this middle space of like, I think I'm letting her down because she. Yes.
1: Me- that comes up a lot, right? Yeah. The, these like feelings of, Am I betraying her if I let this go? She loved it so much. He took all this time to carry it from house to house. Am I obligated to keep it? And yet, so it's all these questions that I find so fascinating and rich to explore of like, how do we decide what to keep?
0: Yeah.
1: Right, and why do we keep it? Why do we feel so attached to these things? I love that you brought up the plastic bags. Yeah. <laughs> like as Chinese Americans, we have a thing with plastic bags. Oh really? Kind of, yeah, like usually plastic shopping bags. There's ah. usually a collection of the good ones that are stashed away. The good bags. Uh, the good bags, yes. And every relative whose place I've had to clear out has had a vast collection of those. Some of them crumbling because they are so old and probably handed down from my grandmother. But you also mentioned the crystal. And I think sometimes that is surprising, right? It's not always the family crystal that we feel the most attached to. It is the little things, where my mom loved little things too. She loved her tchotchkes, she loved her collections. She traveled a lot in her last years. So she had a lot of souvenirs from different trips. Mm -hmm. And it was all these things on her shelves and on her surfaces where before she died, I would look at them and think, oh, when it's time, that's the first to go. (laughs) Yes, yes. And then after she died, Everything that I looked at was so precious. Yeah. And I couldn't even think of how do I let go of that rock that she picked up on vacation. And I felt really paralyzed. Yeah. But again, being forced to make choices by circumstance and practicality, I couldn't afford to keep the house. I had to empty it to sell it. Yeah. And I was living an ocean away. So anything that I did keep, would have to fit into my suitcase to go into my little London apartment right. or into storage, which has a whole other kind of cost. So, my solution was really to put on my curator hat yeah. and say, if I was to do an exhibition about my mother, mm. which 100 objects would I show? And I that, love this. That's that growing. So is that,
0: is that the, oh my God, my mind just exploded and was like, okay, let's go do that right now. Let's, I love that activity. So is that, is that a, is that an activity that you lead people through when they're grieving? So tell us what that looks like, or tell us what that looked like for you when you did your 100 things.
1: Yeah. So I, originally it started off as a theoretical question just to get me moving right out of paralysis, putting on a creative hat giving myself a design brief, and I could put on my curator hat and actually start making decisions. Whereas before, as the grieving, guilt-ridden daughter, I could not make those choices. I actually looked at the storage unit earlier this year, and one of the boxes was actually labeled 100 objects. And yes, and that's how I chose. And about maybe a year and a half after she died, after I sold her house. She died in 2013. I sold her house late in 2014. And then in fall of 2015, I did my first grief-related exhibition in London. And I did put her objects on display. And that installation was called Evidence of My Mother.
0: Oh, God.
1: Because we know the objects represent so much, right? they would become artifacts, they become evidence of how they lived as well as sometimes how they died. And people came and they asked me questions and I told stories about my mother. They told stories about their people and it was beautiful. And looking back, I'm like, that is the memorial I wanted to give her. Yeah, Because the actual memorial is, you know, all kinds of weird and uncomfortable and we're not really ready for it. So it was so healing. Oh God. So, so,
0: but also I think my mind is exploding a little bit because, well, two (laughs) things, one, there's the objects themselves, right. And whatever the value that they have, you know, and maybe there's jewelry or there's a chair or a table or something. And I have five brothers and sisters. So we did not have the experience of everyone wanting to fight over, you know, mom's crystal dishes but uh, but I certainly have worked with lots of family where you know there's lawyers by the you know within 15 minutes like there's a there's a lot of tension around the stuff so there's that piece which is like you know the actual value of the stuff and what that means and and where that sort of places us and what do we have to do with that versus what you're describing I think and I'm imagining it right like I'm imagining what it would be like to curate a hundred things that are the the essence of my mom. Like that would be a teacup, you know, she and a and a and a true crime book because she drank tea every day. It was a you know religious practice for her, and a rosary because she was deeply Catholic. And, you know, I could do and and pearls because she grew up sort of like on the lower end of middle class and having pearls and having a fur coat and having crystal, you know, glasses was an achievement in her mind was a, was a way of, you know, honoring her parents and, and them being coming from a family of immigrants. So it's a, it's a really fascinating, I think I'm going to do this. I think I'm going to, sit and think about it because, because ultimately what I did, you know, I, and, and this would be included, but I have my mother's, she and I were so different in this way. She has this, she had the same address book, A to Z black patent leather address book since she was in college. I like a new notebook, you know, so I transferred all the things into it. She had the same one with tiny pieces of paper stuck in there about dentist appointments. And
1: yep bristling with like post-its, right? That's what I
0: kept. And then I also had a dream about a bowl that used to sit on her table and I kept that bowl and pretty much I didn't keep anything else. And, and I really felt right about that at the time. It was tricky because you know, it was during COVID that I was cleaning out her house. So I was sending things to siblings that I thought they would want, knowing that they didn't have the privilege that I had of being in the space and touching all her things. But really what I wanted was to touch all her things and honor them and sort of in that Marie Kondo way, thank them and then send them on to their next life. That's really what I discovered in the process. What your activity is like allowing me is a different way of thinking about the things and the way that she loved those things. It's just a different way of thinking. I mean, I might put one of her glasses on display because that's, she loved to have family dinners where she used her fancy stuff.
1: Yes. So I love how instantly you've got that concept.
0: Yeah. It's not hard. And, I think.
1: <laughs> well, because I think so many people have this experience yeah. and even and it sounds like you had a good relationship with your mother. I had a good relationship with mine. Yeah. And even people whose relationships with their parents or their loved ones are more complicated. Yeah. That idea of the objects and their belongings, having this kind of emotional charge to it yeah. resonates with people. And in terms of from a coaching standpoint and working with clients, it's a really great starting point to explore their grief where they are and also the circumstances of how they lost their person because for some people like me you know I was 35 when I lost my mother and my pain and difficulty was dealing with making those decisions and having those responsibilities and feeling so incredibly lonely and overwhelmed and for other people because maybe they lost their mother when they were a child, they didn't get to choose anything. That's right. So then their pain comes from their lack of agency. You know, other people threw away things, they didn't keep things for me. I so wish that I still had my mother's necklace, for yeah. instance. So I love the objects because as you so easily accessed, right, and illustrated for us, you found the stories. You found the memories about what you wanted to remember about your mother and also what you want other people to know about her. And one of the exercises and prompts that I might ask someone is, okay, if you have these different stories you want to tell about your person, which objects might help to illustrate those stories? And yeah,
0: it reminds me of show and tell. As a kid, right? The idea that, like, it's hard when you're seven to know how to get up in front of a group and talk about anything. If you're holding, I don't know, your favorite truck, you can say, like, my grandfather gave it to me. I got it as a birthday present. I, you know, like to use it in the backyard. I'm imagining, you know, when I'm working with clients, we actually, the model that I use is we actually go into the energy that's in the body. So we don't necessarily, do a lot of talking about like, then this happened and then that happened. And then that happened because one, Mm -hmm. particularly in trauma with grief and loss, people's memories are not reliable and they get really frustrated because they can't remember and they don't know the timeline. And usually that settles out over time, but it can be tricky. What I often ask them to do is bring in photos. Mm -hmm. I often say, just go home. You know, if you have access to five or six photos or they'll have them on their phone, cause they put them together for memorial service or something. And I'll say, just walk me through why, why did you choose these? You know, and, and just inside what they say, you know, she looked so healthy in this picture lets me already know yes. that they spent time with their loved one when she didn't look healthy. So it's just a way of like not having to ask so many direct questions and sort of collect information to be curious about, about what is the loss that you are feeling, right?
1: Yes. And for a larger audience, right? When we're talking about grief awareness and making it more normal to talk about grief and loss, it's also really helpful. So I just got back from London as curator of the grief gallery. I do installations and exhibitions around grief and death and loss. And it often spotlights the belongings of loved ones we've lost. Because even a general audience, I put the objects that belong to my grandmother, as well as my mother and my great aunt Mm -hmm. on display on a gallery plinth or, you know, the white display pedestal pedestal. Thank you you for the language. (laughs) (laughs) When you come from the gallery world, like we talk about plinth all the time, same within a retail setting. And then you realize, oh, no one knows what a plinth is. So it's the white display pedestal that you always see in galleries and museums. And part of the reason why I love the plinth so much is that that means someone has designated it, the object that's on it as important and worthy of attention. And I very much feel that the objects that belong to our loved ones also deserve that attention because they were so important to us. So I put those objects on display, one, to invite people into a conversation about who did they lose? I share my stories about my people, and that's just an invitation if they want to share. And even people who haven't lost someone super close to them, they still light up and say, oh, my grandmother had a pin cushion like that,
0: Yeah,
1: right? It immediately, they're able to access that memory and get why there's that connection between story and object. Yeah. Uh, so the exhibitions, I think, are amazing for that. I love the conversations that happen. And when working one-to-one with people and with clients, that is an option that I can help them to create an exhibition for their person Yep. That's usually going to be online. Maybe it's just even private for them. But yes, using that same kind of creative brief for them to start looking at what they might want to keep. Some people are in the midst of trying to figure out what to keep in the recent aftermath of losing a loved one. Other people have had a storage unit for 10, 20 years. Yeah. And they're thinking, okay, maybe it's time to yeah. actually look at this. Right, this question of what is it costing me, both yeah. in terms of money and, of course, we know all these other things, when we don't look at what we've been reluctant to look at, and I when think that's so, the beauty.
0: Sorry, I mean, it, it's yeah. really what I what it what it's making me think about. I'm so grateful for this conversation. What it's making me think about is, you know, conversations that I've had. This this comes up. I can think of five or six times. And it, it was also true for me when I opened my father's closet and saw all his mm. shoes and his belts. Yes. yes. There was something. And I'm thinking about also in the Holocaust museum here in DC, there is a display of shoes. There is something so intimate about yes. the broken in leather, just for this person of something like a shoe. When I worked as a, as a social worker in a school in DC, I had a totally beloved teenager whose grandmother died suddenly and he needed to be transferred. And he came and gave me two pairs of his grandmother's shoes. And he said, I don't know why I'm giving these to you. And I was like, I, I do. I, there is something so, emotionally provocative about, and I always think about it as like the quantum physics, like their life, you can see it inside that shoe because it's the way that their weight on their heel and the way that they, you know, pronated their knee that, that created this thing that like really only they could wear. I know that people give shoes to goodwill and all that stuff, but like really that, that it's, it's, for your essence and your body. And it's the body that we end up losing. And, you know, we don't really know. I I happen to like the idea that, you know, energy is not destroyed. And so that the energy of the person is still out there in the world. But I'm just thinking about like being able to have the conversations both about like, you know, what my mother would have displayed about her And what I would have displayed about her are very different things.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And, and the, the pieces I I was realizing as I was talking, I also took my father's big cut, big chopping knife. It happens to also be a good knife, but Mm. I, I loved my father's hands. I loved seeing him cut and chop. I spent a lot of time sitting with him when he was cooking, even though he hadn't done that probably in 20 years, he did that when I was a child. And so the knife just, You know, it feels like it has bits of him in it still, almost like, almost like that Harry Potter, like horror crux thing where like part of their essence is inside this thing versus part of what you're describing, which is like, this is represent, this can be representative. It's reminding me of is that when we're talking about traumatic loss, sometimes we need people to have a bit of distance. There Mm. needs to be not such intensity, not such belts and shoes and a little bit more you know being able to say she really loved this about
1: mm. her. I think what you're describing too is kind of how I think of the objects and the belongings as anchor objects
0: yeah that
1: yep. for me I tend to think of it as you know that they are anchors i imagine the stories that are attached to them the memories that are attached to them that they help to anchor these stories and memories we want to keep yeah. and also there is an energy aspect for sure. And sometimes there's even, you know, for my mom's things, sometimes I look at what I still have of hers. And I think, you know, her fingerprints are probably still on that. Her DNA is probably still on that. And that's another aspect of what do we leave behind, (laughs) which is an interesting part of the question. And I love what you've brought up about the intimacy of the clothing. And some people find that really reassuring and comforting, right? We all have perhaps, if we're lucky, some pieces that might still smell like them. I wore a scarf of my mom's during this London trip that had been in a plastic bag. Mm -hmm. And it still smelled like her house. And that was amazing. And you're right. For other people, it's too intimate.
0: Yeah, can kill you.
1: Mm, yeah, have can I've be really triggering. Smell can yes. be
0: really triggering. Yeah.
1: Yeah, smell and the clothing where, I mean, maybe, I don't know if you experienced this, where sometimes there are areas of the house, of their house, their home, that we just can't touch. Yeah. We have to keep it as is, like still life. Yeah. And for some people I've spoken to, that's been the closet. Yep. You know, don't touch the clothing. Don't touch the shoe. Yeah, I had so to have my husband.
0: Up. I had to have my husband do my dad's closet. Mm-hmm. I did my mom's, but I hadn't realized that my dad's was still there, even
1: mm-hmm. though
0: my mother had never told me she got rid of his things. I just assumed she had, and yeah. because she worked at a charity shop, and so it just seemed like, <laughs> and and when I opened the closet, I was like, oh my god, I can't do this. Also, like I'm not emotionally prepared for this. The thing that I found the hardest and mm. and I actually ultimately didn't really do it was the Christmas ornaments. Mm, I mean, yep. when it was practical, it was the summer, their attic was not, is not insulated, <laughs> didn't have cooling. And so going up to the attic in the summer, but, but it was more, I couldn't, I couldn't take the, the flooding of like the childhood experiences. My, the thing that my mom and dad really, really did you know, all the way a thousand percent high tilt was Christmas decorations, food, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And multiple of my siblings were like, Hey, if you could just make sure that we get this Christmas ornament. So even though I had that, I couldn't do it. And I yes. just kept putting it off and I kept putting it off and I would sit with myself and be like, you know, it's okay that you're putting this off. And then another part of me would be the, be like, but you're letting people down because they need those <laughs> things. And ultimately people were able to go through it, but I didn't know that when I walked away from the house and was like, I can't, I can't do the Christmas ornaments. They're too, yeah. they're too provocative. It's too much. Yeah. Right? Can I ask you a question? Do you mm-hmm. have people who have regrets about what they gave away or, or sure. what isn't there? How do you how do you help them with that? What what is the what is the work in the curation space about helping them? You know, I donated all my brother's whatever, and you know his cowboy boots or whatever. And I and I wish I hadn't. I regret that now because I have a lot of folks, you know, who really do have to navigate this hard space early on in grief when you can't predict how you're going to feel down the line. And I have so much compassion for the pain of not knowing that they really should have kept or wanted to keep X sort of thing.
1: Yes. Well, one, I love that you talked about what was hardest for you to go through, because I think sometimes in doing this work with the creative work, and when we're talking about remembering our people and celebrating our people... That there can be an emphasis on the positive memories and focusing on the great things. And it's hard. (laughs) And when we're sorting through things, right, sorting through the things that we do feel good about, we often encounter things that we don't feel good about. That's right. There were things in my mother's house that. I felt really attached to not because it was anchoring stories about the good relationship that we had, yeah. but because it was anchoring regrets yeah. that I, things that I wish I had done better, wishing I had been more patient with her. So I think it's really important to be able to look at that. And again, I think the curating process is actually really helpful for that because yeah. getting started with that question of what do we want to choose to keep requires that we actually look at everything. Yeah. Including the things that don't feel so good. So one, there's that, and just grace for yourself. Yeah. Right. For finding it hard. Right. I mentioned my storage unit. I sold my mother's house in 2014. And it wasn't until January of this year, 2022, that I tackled the storage unit. Yep. And it had Boxes of things that, you know, the home organizers tell you to put things in categories, right? Right. Donate, keep, (laughs) trash. Right, right. I had, yes, I had this massive category of too painful to deal with right now. And also, it was delayed because of COVID as well, but I did tackle that this January and Uh got rid of a lot of things. It was also part of an exhibition and a design residency that I was doing. That helps. Yes. Again, a creative brief helps, (laughs) but to, to answer your question about the pain, as you mentioned, some people let things go without realizing how they'll feel about it afterwards. Other people have to let things go because they don't have the space or they didn't get given the choice or they couldn't afford a storage unit. And there is a lot of pain about that. And what I find really lovely about the exhibitions and the creative work is that we have this ability to to separate the memory and the story and the actual object, right? Like one, on the one hand, we are saying the objects are so important because of the stories and the memories and they are because as human beings, all we have is stories yeah. and narrative. And I suggest, and I help people work through in coaching that it's possible to keep the story and the memory yeah. and not the object. So that's part oh, of the work.
0: It's beautiful. And what it's making me, what it's making me think of when I was a young therapist, One of the things that I was trained in is, you know, Hey, listen, your clients are really going to love you and you're going to love them back. And they're going to want to give you gifts and you can't really take gifts Mm. and, you know, whatever I'm, I'm much further into my world right now. And I actually think like, you can take gifts if it's super important to somebody, you know, but when I was early in training, what I was taught to was to sort of put the gift in between me and the person and say, tell me what you want this Tell me what the message is from this. Tell me what you want this to say. And when I was cleaning my mom's house, I had a big table of things. She, she really did work at a charity shop that, you know, get, you know, sold things that had come from people's estate sales. So we had an easy place to put all of the things, even though it was COVID, most things weren't open. We still had an easy place to do it. And there was this one clock which I actually, I wrote a short story about. And the clock was what my siblings and I at the last minute ran to the mall to buy because my father had told us it was their 25th wedding anniversary. And we were like, oh my God. So with baby money, valet money, you know, we took the family minivan, ran to the mall and went to this store called Things Remembered, which I'm sure is out of business, but it's basically like a trophy store. And we bought this kind of like mini grandfather clock that- only children would pick out, right? I mean, it didn't match any of that, the decor in the house. But when we gave it to her, she was like, what are you? And it was really expensive for us as kids. You know, we understood that we had to get something nice. And when we gave it to her, my dad wasn't even in town. And she opened it up and she was like, what the hell is this for? We were like what do you mean it's for your 25th anniversary and she was like no and she was like it's my 24th anniversary. And so my mother who had this tremendous sense of humor loved that clock more than all the things because it was like a mistake it was ridiculous and it was adorable. And so here's this clock you know I take it off the wall and I'm like oh my god this the story behind this clock is so rich and so complicated. And she loved it, not because of the thing, but because of what it represented. And I kept taking the clock off the consignment table and putting it in the keep table. And then I'd be like, oh, but I hate it. It's so ugly. And then I put it back in the consignment table. And then I put it back in my, you know, keep table. And I asked my other siblings, hoping, and people were like, no, I don't want the stupid clock. And finally, I wrote the story of the clock. Yes, I wrote the story of the clock and I had the story of the clock, it was easy to put the clock in the consignment pile and that someone who actually liked the clock would have it at home. And that story wasn't theirs to hold because that was our family's. And when Mm -hmm. I wrote it, it was almost like the little mysticism of all the complicated emotions just sort of, you know, exploded out of it. And I got to keep it. I have no idea where the clock is now, but it's not in my home where I did not ever want it to be.
1: (laughs) That is such a beautiful example of that, right? That you captured the story in another form and that way you were able to let go of the object. And it also illustrates this phenomenon that I think helps people to access this idea that well, we all had different relationships with the person. That's right. So the object that we look at and say, oh, that means so much. A sibling, right? A parent. You're talking
0: about that's right.
1: Right. They have no connection to it. They don't have that story. Maybe yeah. they're connected to something else that means nothing to you. Right. That's Just exactly. as you said, like, well, the next family, they don't have that story. So that's an aspect of looking at it, which again can help people to let go, mm-hmm. and also to let go sometimes of resentments of that person did not value that piece that I love so much. Yeah, They didn't have that story yeah. and they probably had a different relationship that might be very different from the one that you had. So I think that's another beauty of the objects that yeah. it gives people permission to really explore what was their relationship yeah. with a person. So I love that. And like oh, you said, God, what, does what does it represent? What does it represent? Just like you said,
0: for yeah. some reason, this story is coming to me. When, when one of my nieces or nephew, I'll, I'll keep the gender out there was being born. (laughs) One of my siblings wives was pregnant and we went to a baby shower and my mother bequeathed my siblings wife, one of the like hats that, that Hmm. you put on a baby when they're being christened and then you take it off. And it's a, it's a Catholic thing that you like bring the baby or Christian thing that you bring the baby into the, you know, into the world of God by pouring water over its head. And she had this beautiful little box, you know, it looked like it was from like 1950 and this perfectly pressed linen cap. And she said, this is what my son wore when he was being christened. I I kept Mm -hmm. this now. Here you go. And everybody was like crying like oh my god this is so beautiful this is so meaningful and later at the table i was like picking things up and looking and i turned it over and it had the name of a different sibling on the back of it (laughs) and i brought it over to her and she goes oh it's the thought that counts it doesn't matter (laughs) and i was like right that whole thing was a lie she's like whatever i didn't know i mean she you know she was playing to the sap of it all and the intention, but it doesn't actually matter that it's the hat that that baby wore, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> You're not infusing anything. It's whatever it is that you decide to put the meaning in there. Yes. And even my yes. mom who acted like she had kept this with this intent, and probably she did and just mixed up the hats, but she was like, ah, it doesn't really matter. And I think <laughs> that Right. I think that's what we're talking about is it really actually matters and it doesn't matter all at the same time.
1: Yes. Which is incredibly liberating, right? That we are not historians. That's right. We are not a curator at the Met, right? We are just the curators and the custodians potentially of the belongings of our loved ones. And it doesn't have to be that serious, so that's why I find so beautiful about it, that it like, it can be so meaningful and it doesn't have to be.
0: (laughs) That's exactly. I just, I love this concept of curation as editing with the purpose of telling a story and that that story is love and loss and probably Mm -hmm. all the complicated emotions in between. You know, I, I, when I'm working with people who have complicated grief and, and usually compound loss. I I teach them this word, alexithymia, which means that you are not able to identify your feelings. And so we talk about, you know, there are people who have mapped the energy inside the body. And so we have a little bit of an idea of like where dread is in the body and where joy is in the body, but you know, we don't really know. And so can we go inside with these words and distinguish between being frustrated and being angry? And, you know, can we look at those things? and usually what we're trying to do is come up with a story of when those emotions are you know poignant and a part of our lives so that then we can we can name them and sort of categorize them and then be able to communicate using them and i'm just thinking about all of the ways in which you could have those conversations around an object and the story with an object. And that even I think children, I, I don't think that this, yes. I imagine this as an activity that whereas some, some therapeutic techniques are really tricky with people. I imagine this is one that people universally are able yeah. to enter into with, with some positive experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly children have their trend transitional objects. Yeah. Right. And I think they maybe understand better than adults the power of objects to help us feel safe and to help us feel good. And like, it's cool. Yeah. I feel good about this one. I want to talk about it. Let me tell you all about my teddy bear. Right. And as in terms of processing and accessing emotion, I'm very much like a cognitive processor and an instrumental processor. So I was because I lost my mother so suddenly and I often described it as being blindsided by her death. Right. And it sounds like you're with your mother as well.
0: Yeah. She we had a little bit of notice, but it was still incredibly mm. shocking. Just incredibly yeah.
1: shocking. I didn't really cry for the first two years. Like my way to deal with it was okay, where's the checklist? Yeah. Okay, what needs to get done with the house? Yeah. When, when are we planning the memorial? Let me go contact all the lawyers and whoever I need to contact. So I think maybe that was also a way for me to access my emotions yeah. was by looking at the things in our house and saying, Oh, what brings up the most? So I do think it is a very accessible way to have those conversations. Yeah. And Yeah.
0: It's Mm -hmm. the other thing that it's making me think is that, you know, just to remind folks that there isn't one white right way to grieve. Mm -hmm. And that when you're saying I didn't cry for two years, that doesn't mean you were doing anything wrong, that that's Mm -hmm. actually the grief process for people. You know, some people, they really have to pack it in or their, their system packs it in for a decade and then they address those hard feelings for whatever reason. And there isn't a right way. There are ways in which we can sort of, you know, cobble ourselves and make it harder. You know, people who are drinking through loss, like, you know, that it's a way, it might make things harder on you if you end up with, you know, a substance problem, but it's a way. And also not, you know, just functioning and getting things done and solving problems is part of a way. And I I appreciate you describing it, you know, in my, in my work, we're always trying to tag to the emotional experience because mm. my belief is the emotions are kind of in there and they will drive yes. things, you know, if they don't, if you don't tag, if you don't duck, duck, goose and tag them on the head, they can drive some stuff that can make things trickier. And so how you get there, it might be, we do cognition first. It might be, we do movement first. It might be, but, but our goal is kind of always t- just to know a little bit of, of more about what the the emotions, and by emotions, I just mean the electrical currents of you know, of the experience of fear and anger and all those words inside yes. your body, which happen whether or not you're aware of them or whether you can name <laughs> them. I wanted to I wanted to ask you, have you ever read Rachel Levy Lesser's? Books. No. She has a book about. Do you know this author? She's just the loveliest person, and she wrote a book called Life's Accessories. It's a memoir, and it's mm-hmm. very similar to what we're talking about. It's her mother's things and scarves and jewelry and and she has a lovely Instagram account where she comes on and is like, "I'm wearing my mom's gloves today." You know, these <laughs> are and I would be so curious. I didn't have the. She was on my podcast a long time ago, and I didn't have the conversation. But I think she must have done what you are describing, which is figured out a way to curate what she was keeping Mm -hmm. because she does very specific items. And she, some of them have to do with cooking, like, you know, dishes and things, but she really does use them also in that, that way of like celebrating and expressing and talking about, you know, she's very inviting both in her book and in her, in her Instagram for people to be really engaged with the idea of yes. like, let me show you my mother's casserole dish. My mother died.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really lovely. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I will really check lovely. it out. Well, yeah, and, she's and, really you know, great. It, and what you've shared with her, and it sounds like with us too, that we're comfortable with owning things yeah, and engaging that's right. with things. That's right. There are people who will want to just, there are people who just want to get rid of everything. That's right. You know, they don't right. feel attached to things. My husband and I have very different approaches yep. to owning items. He's much more of a minimalist. Yeah. He did not understand why it was taking me so long to go through my mother's things. Yeah. So there are a whole range of approaches there. And as you mentioned, also coping skills, that range of coping skills, some of which are maybe not constructive, but it's a way that people cope. And when my mother died, I had decades <laughs> of CBT therapy, yes, well, yeah. cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy behind me because I have an anxiety disorder. Yeah. And i leaned into those tools. And I do think that my body did what it needed to do. Yeah. I was very aware that I'm in charge of selling the house. I have to make these decisions. I cannot afford to break down right now. Right. So I'm going to hold it together. Yep. And then it's really probably in the last maybe five years when I've been able to access those emotions. And I kind of say, you know, I, w- I was my first coaching client, yep. learning how <laughs> to coach yep. myself yeah. through the anxiety and the grief. Yep. And I'm always still learning and adding to oh my, my toolkit. Yep. Right. So I'm adding more somatic work, yep. more understanding what's happening in my body, more understanding. Why am I vibrating with an emotion right now? Because I couldn't access that before.
0: Yeah. God, that's such a gorgeous and honest answer. And I think it reminds me like we can take this whole conversation (laughs) full circle, which is anytime (laughs) I'm sitting down with someone and asking them what brings you into the world of grief and loss, what I know is that they have an arc in their story that, probably they didn't expect and they wouldn't have asked for, but it is an arc. It is a journey. It is a passage. And, you know, yours involved having the background of CBT therapy, and then maybe a system that was able to sort of titrate it out so that it didn't overwhelm you. I had read all the books and done all the things and studied all of everything. And I had such terrible PTSD after my mom died that Mm -hmm. I ended up an inpatient. Part of what we're trying to, to encourage people to understand is grief is what it is. And it takes as long as it takes. And there isn't one right way forward. And you're not doing something wrong. If you don't feel a lot of feelings and you're not doing something wrong, if you feel so many feelings, you can't do anything, but have Mm -hmm. those feelings. It's a really wide and expansive way. And this is just another conversation of, listen, we need to have some grief practices and some processes To be in the space, and I just love this idea of a a hundred curated things, and I really am gonna let my mind explode with it. I don't know that I would get to a hundred at this point, but I could (laughs) certainly come up with fifty. And in my grief writing workshop, we do talk about the things and writing about the things, and it's always really rich and robust for people. So, how do people find out more about your work if they're listening to this podcast and they're like, "Oh my God, I need to talk more to Charlie." This is the the right way to for me to move forward
1: yeah they can go to my website which is charlene great and there's also the grief and where you can at charlene lamb.com you can find out more about coaching and i have resources there and videos and at the grief you can find the online exhibitions and documentation of in-person exhibitions mm-hmm. and i share more about that and I'd love to share something. I have a little visual. Yeah. So part of what we're talking about is having a creative outlet, right? So one, I feel so lucky that I did have my creative outlets in addition to having CBT techniques and not everyone has that. And sometimes people think, well, I'm not a curator. I'm not a creative. What do I do? I don't draw. And What I also love to do and what curators also do is they commission artwork. So one of my favorite things is to work with illustrators. Oh my God. So what I'm showing here is this is an illustration from a watercolor artist based in Brooklyn. And we identified certain categories of things that people keep. In this case, this category is things they wore And it's an illustration of a pair of glasses, red lipstick, which is modeled on my mother's lipsticks, Mm -hmm. a pair of leopard print gloves. And this is the kind of activity that we can do. One, when we don't think we have creative skills. Two, even creatives can feel blocked because it feels like so much pressure for them to create something as a tribute to their loved one. And three, this is a great solution when we can't keep the item
0: Yeah, or when
1: we've we've lost it, someone else threw it away, right? We never had it. Yeah. So this is another version where this is a different illustrator. This is an illustration of my mother's dream house by the lake because I had to let go of that house, but I could capture it in a beautiful illustration. I told her about it. She captured the lake, the swans that you could see from the dream house, the little animals that would go by the trees. And it is such a creative process. And I think accessible to a whole oh range of people. <laughs> it,
0: the, that what The gift that you're giving with those two examples is that you yourself don't have to be the person who does the hard thing of capturing the the item. And that even when you can't keep it like a view, right? We can't keep a view that you can keep the view that you can find a way to capture it in a way that's, that's incredible. Yes.
1: I I got really attached to my mother's soy sauce. That was another thing I could not, did not make any sense to keep like an, as an immigrant, like there's so many interesting things that inform what we feel attached to. And for my mom, it was the soy sauce. And again, I didn't have to keep the soy sauce yeah. to keep all of those memories and associations. So it is such a rich kind of scope for exploration. And I'm so glad that one, you've embraced it so enthusiastically. Oh, I just can- love it.
0: I, I just <laughs> love it. You know, and again, I think what you're doing is unique. We'll link for everyone in the show notes. A thank you. I could talk to you. Oh, it was so provocative. And I'm I'm really grateful, you know, because I talk about grief all day. And this is a really unique thing that you're doing. And I think you probably know that. And it, it really does feel incredibly accessible. And I think my listeners are going to be engaged in this in you know, a in a way that is really energetic. I'm so glad. Yeah, good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you. This so is so much
1: fun for me too. All right. We'll Thank stay you.
0: connected. Thanks Charlene. Okay. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye.